to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. I am here with Andrew Pudua, who is the guy that everyone seems to want to be around whenever we're um, at conferences at the same place. It's just crowds of people and um, so really awesome to have him on our podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It is a pleasure, Ginny. I've been uh, admiring your work for a long time and a couple of my kids are big fans of your website and resources and podcasts and everything. So uh, it's delightful to be here with you. I love that. Okay, so let me tell everyone about Andrew. Andrew Pudoa is the founder and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing and a father of seven. That is a lot of kids. Good for you. All right, my thing is clicking here. Do you hear it? I don't hear anything. All right. I think that's okay. I don't know. I'm going to start that over. Andrew is the founder and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing and father of seven, traveling and speaking around the world. He addresses issues related to teaching, writing, thinking, spelling, and music with clarity, insight, practical experience, and humor. His seminars for parents, students, and teachers have helped transform many a reluctant writer and have equipped educators with powerful tools to dramatically improve student skills. Although he is a graduate of the Talent Education Institute in Japan and holds a Certificate of Child Brain Development from the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, his best endorsement is from a young Alaskan boy who called him the funny man with the wonderful words. He and his heroic wife, Robin, have homeschooled their seven children and are now proud grandparents of 15, making their home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Congrats. What a life, Andrew. I love it. 15 grandchildren. Yep, and grandchild number 15 was just born about uh, six weeks ago. Right, yeah, right in our that. house in Tulsa. Yeah, so that, that was wonderful. Book. Actually, I was impressed you had um, updated your website so fast. So nice job. <laughs> you had to get that 15th grandbaby in there. Well, we met, um, I think, at the Alliance Conference, although I'd known who you were for a long time. Um, and the Alliance Conference is um, the faith-based state homeschool organizations get together once a year and just talk about how they're serving homeschoolers in their state and talk about conference best practices. And you were there um, and we connected and I just have noticed that, um, you know, and I've seen you at other conferences as well, that there really are throngs of people around you all the time. And that some people have that, that sort of magnetic draw. Um, and so that's sort of been my experience with you. Even at this last conference, I saw you was in um, Cincinnati and our booth was kind of up near the front doors. And I saw a couple moms and um, they'd stop to talk to you. And it was a, it's just a long conversation. You, you have time for people and you're present with them. So, um, so thanks for what you're doing in the homeschool community. Sure. I, I love it. And uh, we meet so many families who resonate, you know, very well with this idea of how do we help our kids have a better, more natural less plugged in and distracted life because we're all very distracted by screens. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a new word recently. I didn't know this word, although it's very intuitive and makes sense. I was waiting for, uh, well, you probably know uh, Sarah McKenzie. Mm -hmm. 
I was waiting. um, She was waiting for me and we were going to go to dinner with some people. And I, I came up, said, Oh, sorry. I'm a few minutes late. She goes, no problem. I'm just doom scrolling. And have you ever heard that word doom scrolling? I haven't. I, haven't. I guess it applies to, you know, looking at your phone, you know, going to bad news after bad news after bad news. Oh. And, you know, that can be very distracting, even somewhat addictive, but depressing at the same time. Yeah. So is um, I, I, that's a sad word. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think yeah. all of us, you know, old people like me, young people like my grandchildren, uh, we've got to strive hard to not get sucked into negative vortices, uh, whatever that is, whether it's entertainment or news or social media, things that just, you know, disconnect us from our own mind and heart to some degree. So you've got this, um, this session that you do, and you, you were telling me about it, Nature Deficit Disorder. And I was like, oh, that rings a bell. Because <laughs> we've read Richard Lee's books, and um, they're so fantastic. And I love, I love that phrase, uh, the Nature Deficit Disorder. But before we get there, um, I just, uh, well, I wanted to hold up. We use the IEW books. I'd love to, to know a little bit about how you ended up here. So um, this is sort of, I think, the way that homeschool curriculum works for a lot of people. And people ask me what we use. And sometimes a friend will just say, we use this. So then you grab it, you know, you got a copy of it. So we we love these fix-it grammar books. Um, this one's Robin. We've done Robin Hood and the Nose Tree. So a friend said, uh, I love these books. It's just a sentence a day. We're really trying to get our kids active and moving and playing. So anything that can be a quick thing for them to learn, a sentence a day, and they're learning grammar and they're learning um, vocabulary. So, you know, so at the end of the week, we have them read the whole story out loud. There's also the vocabulary in here. And then it, it turns into a whole story by the end. Our kids are wanting to type it out on the computer. They're really into it. So we use those for a couple of years. And then we've got new things this year, Andrew. Because at one of the conferences, people came up to us and said, you got to use these. So we've got the ancient history-based writing lessons and then the fables, myths. Okay. We got, we got some, and finally, this is important, cursive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we've got, we got a lot of your materials and really like them. Um, you know, they're easy to implement and easy to use, which I think as and not all of our audience is homeschooling, but um, the ones that are, are always asking sort of what do we use? And um, and so we really have enjoyed those materials. What can you tell us a little bit about your path to the Institute for Excellence in Writing? Sure. Well, um, my background, as you read in the bio, is actually not in education or English per se. My real training is in music. So I spent the first um, 15 years of my adult life as a full-time Suzuki violin and kinder music teacher. So I was basically spending all my available hours teaching music to young children. But uh, that is not a great way to uh, pay your bills and keep your wife home and grow a family um, without financial stress. It's not a, a particularly easy way to go. And so I was always kind of looking for, you know, a side gig, a little business I could do, something that would get me enough money on the side so I could afford to keep teaching music. 
And uh, I had been working at a school uh, early on, and the whole faculty of this school, this was in uh, Montana, we went up to Canada and took a 10-day teacher training course called the Blended Soundsight Program of Learning, where I learned this method of teaching writing uh, structure and style in composition. And so uh, when I saw it, I, I kind of thought, whoa, this is incredible. It's like a Suzuki method for yeah. teaching writing to kids. And so I came back from that. I taught for the school that year. The results were fantastic. It was one of these little tiny schools where um, it was kind of like all hands on deck and anybody would teach whatever needed to be taught. So I ended up with this weird mix of teaching um, PE computers and English <laughs> literature and composition to basically fifth through seventh grade kids. And the results were so good that next summer I thought, I'm going to go back and take that course again in Northern Alberta. And so uh, the whole faculty didn't go a second year, but I did. And uh, I, I learned more and I thought, this is so rich. This is so good. And then our situation changed a little bit and uh, we shifted over from the school where I was working to starting the preschool and, and uh, increasing my, my teaching of music uh, to, to supplement that because the school was was pretty rural and and it was a pretty low pay to be quite honest. Right. And uh, so I started I started teaching some writing classes to my two oldest who were 12 and 10 at the time and their friends, kind of an after school enrichment thing. And that just went really well. And so I kept doing that for a while. I went up a third year and took the same course. And they said, well, if you're going to keep coming up here, you might as well join our team and help us do this thing. So um, I did that. I, I kind of joined the staff of the Blended Soundsight course. And um, then I, I kind of phased out and did something else for a couple of years, but I really missed teaching. So uh, we moved to Idaho. I went back to teaching music and uh, writing classes on the side. And right around that time, the school in uh, Montana said, oh, would you come and do a little workshop for our few teachers that are new here and teach them that writing program that you learned? And so I did. And they had a couple of parents that were kind of hangers on her that were homeschooling. They said, whoa, this system is kind of the best we've ever seen for teaching writing. Um, you should do this with homeschoolers. And so I thought, well, <clears throat> I would like to do that. So. Um, I made a little flyer, I made a little business idea, called it the Institute for Excellence in Writing, kind of just because I thought that sounded cool. I stamped these, were this was pre-internet days, so I printed these flyers, put stamps on them, sent them in a box to a homeschool group in Seattle, and said, hey, would you mail these out to your 400 members, and they did, and um I got, you know, 20 people to pay 40 bucks to listen to me talk for a whole day. I thought, this is more than I can make in a whole week teaching violin. This has potential. Wow. So I spent about five years doing both, teaching music as hard as I could, and then um, traveling and doing a Saturday seminar or a Friday, Saturday seminar somewhere where I could get to. And by 99, I was making more money 
doing seminars and selling videotapes. We were, if you remember those things, VHS <laughs> and, and, and cassettes. Um, then I was teaching music. So at that point in 2000, we moved to California. I went full time, got my first uh, helper, my first employee team member uh, a year after that. And then it's just been growing from there. So yeah, I kind of stumbled into it. But in retrospect, I think, well, this was this was kind of what I was trained for not necessarily consciously, but all circumstances converged together. It was like the hidden hand in my life. Yeah. And I was able to uh, hit that. And uh, it's just been a great run. I've been at it full time for a little over 20 years now. And um, you've got a few of products and uh, that grammar thing. I really um, never expected it to get as big as it was. I just thought it'd be a good little side thing. But the kids like it because it's short and it's clear and yeah. it's not like you have to study and do a bunch of fill in the blanks or something and then take a test. Uh, it's, just it, like it's learning in context, right? So I think one of the things I had read maybe in the beginning of it was, you know, a lot of times we teach kids things so out of context. You know, we teach them grammar rules, but why not teach them right within the context of writing and, and a story and something unfolding. So I think it's brilliant. I've really, really liked that. And it's quick, you know, so I think it's a draw for parents and teachers. It's really interesting to hear your story. I, um, I read my, my midwife sent me this thing a long time ago from this book called rich. It's like rich habits, poor habits. And, um, I have the book. I've never finished it, but there's this associated test with it for parents. And it was, it's like this 40 question thing about, you know, are you teaching your kids good habits, right? And we don't care if our kids are rich, you know, that doesn't matter, but you know, we want our kids to be successful. And so you go through this list of questions and what's interesting is that none of them have to do with grade point average. You know, they all have to do with social skills and do we remember people's birthdays and, you know, do we, do we limit our screen time? It's all these sort of smaller things that add up. But one of the things that really struck me was do you have your kids read biographies? And, mm. and after I read that, I started to read more biographies. And I think when you hear people's stories, you learn that their path to success was like this, you know, or their path, you know, you come to a homeschool conference. I actually didn't know your background. And, you know, you see this big booth and, you know, so you think, well, this guy must've been, you know, in high school, he must've been in the honors English class and he must've done all these things. But then, you know, when you hear the, the full story, you learn that, um, there's a path and uh, there's a winding and there's a beautiful journey and that all of these experiences, they, they can sometimes culminate. And so I think it's great for everyone to have heard your story. And, um, Suzuki is actually really interesting. Um, I'm a piano player and so I cannot play by ear at all. Uh, so Suzuki has always been really interesting to me. And one of the elements I've heard you say is that, they help the parents help the kids is sort of a, a component there, um, which is that, you know, if you go to a lesson, you know, you only go to a lesson once a week. But with the Suzuki method, it's more accessible for parents to help their kids throughout the week, which helps them be more successful. And so it's interesting because that's kind of what you've created. Right. In a sense. Yes. yes. One of the um, 
one of the things about, well, there's four pillars of Suzuki method, if you will, four pillars of talent education. One is creating the right environment. So Suzuki noted that the reason all Japanese children learn to speak Japanese very easily is because they live in Japan. And that's that makes it a whole lot easier than children who don't live in Japan. So he kind of transferred that idea to music and created recordings and said, play these recordings, you know, many hours, day after day after day. And the children memorize the music and then they don't have to learn the music per se. They just have to learn how to make their, you know, bodies and fingers and, and everything do that. So that's the first key is the environment. The second is the right period. He noted, and I think we've all noticed this, the, easy, the younger you are, the easier it is to learn a new language. Uh, and so if you compare, you know, if, if you took your family and moved to Guatemala, you would notice that your younger children probably acquire uh, ease and fluency in Spanish faster than your older ones and a lot faster than the adults like you. Uh, so Suzuki said, well, why do we wait until kids are, you know, 12 or teenagers to teach them music? Why not start at a younger age? So he kind of popularized this idea of music lessons at, you know, four, five, six years old. And of course, if you're going to do that, you can't really expect the child to come to a lesson, remember everything, go home and practice carefully. So that gets to the third pillar, uh, which is uh, the, the right teacher. So the right environment, the right age or period, and then the right teacher. And uh, so he noted that uh, children learn their mother tongue primarily from their mother. That's why it's called mother tongue or from parents or environmentally at home. So he got into this teaching of parents, the violin and other instruments so that they could teach young children at home. And uh, I started playing the violin when I was about five. Uh, my mother was a piano and voice teacher and there weren't a lot of Suzuki or there was very little Suzuki around in the early 60s when I was a little kid. Uh, so she was kind of in we were in the experimental batch, uh, but she was very open to it. And eventually, you know, she became a uh, she trained, got training and became a Suzuki piano teacher. And she actually created a kind of voice program based on the Suzuki method called Singing Made Easy. Uh, and published and sold that until she passed on. Uh, I took control of it and then passed it on actually to uh, someone else who's better at marketing uh, music stuff. Right. And then the fourth, the fourth pillar, it was the right method, which is the incremental and mastery approach. Uh, we call this at IEW the EZ plus one. So you do something until it's easy. And then, and only then, do you add in the next complexity, and you keep doing that until it becomes easy. And then, and only then, do you add in the next complexity, and so that you're only adding in one little step of complexity, and you're continuing to practice and perfect all of the skills that you've learned up to that point. And uh, that was kind of what uh, I saw with Dr. Webster and the structure and style checklist was 
this is brilliant. You get, you know, three things to do in every paragraph. When that becomes easy, you add one more thing, but you don't dump a whole lot of complexity on a child all at once or too fast. So they become overwhelmed and start to dislike it because of the overwhelm. And uh, that principle is just so broadly applicable in all areas of teaching and parenting. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code. Outside 120. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. But this is fascinating because you took your violin training, right? Your Suzuki method and have transferred a lot of those uh, pillars into your Institute for Excellence in Writing. I mean, I see it, right? That the parent is there. It's a day-by-day thing. You're walking through it with your child. Um, you know, that, that plus one, you know, just incremental um, incremental learning. So uh, that's why it's neat to learn people's stories, right? You see sort of yeah, all, how it all goes together. So you mentioned your, your mother teaching piano and voice and that, that part of your childhood was just... Um, staying out of her hair, basically, right? And that she didn't really know where you were and you were out playing and and kind of um, uh, filling your own time. So uh, let's, well, let's talk about your childhood. Um, you know, did you have a lot of time to play outdoors when you were a kid? Uh, how do you think that affected you? How is it different from kids today? 
Yeah, I I was very, very blessed. And I didn't really start thinking about it until I hit like 50 years old. And it was kind of funny. A lot of things happen when you hit 50. Um, one thing is you kind of realize, wow, my life is probably over, half over. Uh, I, I was also hit with kind of a wave of gratitude uh, just, you know, for all the blessings that I've experienced. And, and part of that was reflecting on my parents who were moving into the last phase of their life. My mother was a music teacher. My father was an engineer and he worked to live, but he lived to sail. So we lived in Southern California. We had a 32 foot sailboat and uh, I spent a tremendous amount of time um, in nature. Um, you know, he loved to take off a day, you know, especially in the summertime, he'd take off a day or two of work with his vacation days. And we would sail over to Catalina Island, which would take, I don't know, four or five hours, depending on the wind. And we would anchor our, our little boat there in this, you know, very, very, um, non, non-civilized place. There, there were no stores, there were no roads, there was just boats parked, you know, in this little bay and a beach and you would bring all your own food and you would cook it. And then, you know, you could fish along the way and eat some of your fish if you got lucky. Um, and my father just loved being on the water, near the water. And so that was just our childhood. And one of the, of course, this was pre-internet days, but one of the really interesting things about going on a boat away from your home for four days is you're really disconnected from all media. I mean, we didn't even listen to the radio. We had a radio for emergencies, but we never used it. Of course, no television. And so I had these big chunks of time where I would you know, either be sitting on the boat, watching the waves, looking at the the mountains of the island, or more likely, you know, running up and down the beach or climbing on the rocks. And as I got a little older and more independent, I would take long hikes, sometimes all by myself, you know, into the mountains and be gone for hours. And for some reason, this didn't seem to bother my parents. They were I don't know, relatively relaxed about letting me get in a dinghy and sail sail out beyond where they could see me, trusting that somehow I would make my way back or climb up, you know, climb a mountain and, and be out of sight for hours. And I just think that is a very different attitude yeah. than my than uh, my wife and I had about our children at that age. Uh, and I would say very different than most parents have where we tend to just be so worried. We have to absolutely know every one of our kids is at every minute, you know, even when they get into their teenage years. So I, I mourn the loss of that kind of freedom I had because it was so good for me. What do you, when you're think, alone, what do you think that freedom does for a child? Freedom like that. Trust. Well, you know, when you're alone in nature, you're contemplating things, you know, it's, you're not necessarily, thinking formally or logically, but you're absorbing the beauty. You're 
watching the animals, you're seeing the plants, you're, you're kind of just immersing yourself in the creation. And there's something that, that is, that, that was, went deep into my soul. And, you know, later in life, I, I, my, my parents weren't particularly religious in any way. I mean, usually if it was Sunday, we were on the boat, not in church. Um, but later in life, I, you know, I, I found faith and I looked at the relationship between my childhood and that, that richness of faith. And I really felt that that immersion in nature had done so much to tune myself to a creator and the creation. And uh, I'm, I'm just profoundly grateful. And uh, that was right around the time when we made a conscious effort. Uh, when I turned 50, we moved from California to Eastern Oklahoma and we went very rural, you know, at the end of the paved road. And so one of the motivations of moving way out into the country was just so that, you know, my remaining children at home could have more of that type of freedom. And you could just kick them out of the house and say, you know, come back by dinner time and, and have the, the comfort of knowing they're not likely to be, uh, I don't know, having something bad happen. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you would think that as a child, and and I had a lot of freedom as well um, in the 80s. You know, I remember riding my bike a lot and ride through all these different neighborhoods. And, you know, I think I could go for hours and, um, you know, that it, it builds a confidence in yourself. You know, I think that I can be out on my own and I can make decisions and I'm safe. And um, I have this competency that maybe will carry me through. And. And that that may be a piece that kids are missing if they're not having those experiences where they get to direct their own life for a bit. Yeah, one of uh, my good friends, you may know Andrew Kern, uh, but he he has a talk and he talks about uh, four deep needs, four deep level desires of our souls. Um, one of those um, is to rule. And in, in, in that word, it's a very big word and talk about dominion and in the relationship between play and learning self-rule, self-governance. Uh, you need to learn your limits. You need to make decisions, whether that's, you know, when the weather is bad and you're indoors creating your blocks or Lego or dollhouse universe. And when, it, when you're outside, you know, I, I remember you know, in this situation, being on a rock and looking at another rock, thinking, can I jump from this rock to that rock? And, you know, I, I think a typical mother would say something like, be careful, you know, but your mother's not there. And so, okay, you take the risk and you discover your limits. And, you know, part of the reason that we have bodies that heal themselves is so that we can learn lessons along the way and, and come out on the other side and say, okay, if I do that again, I'm going to do it a little differently, or maybe right, I shouldn't right. do that again, or maybe I did that. I'm going to try something even a little more wild, a little more ambitious. Well, and that's why they say that risky play. So in that sense, that's risky play. Risky play is not, you know, letting your two-year-old wander by the road. 
you know, is, um, but risky play in terms of, you know, a child could get slightly hurt, you know, that type of thing that actually makes them safer in the long run, right? Because they've learned all of these things through that experience of what their bodies can and can't do. And then they have a better knowledge for, for the next time. And they're not really getting those experiences. We have, um, I live in Tulsa now. Uh, we moved from the country to the city after our kids were pretty much grown for various reasons. But um, Tulsa a few years ago opened a very, very large park. Oh, everyone knows about that one. I know we want to come. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> gathering place. It's getting, you know, nationwide coverage as being like the best city park in the country. Yeah. But one of the things I really like about this park is it's got play equipment where you actually could get hurt. You know, that there is that edge of risk. And yeah, you could fall down and twist your ankle or maybe break something. But there's that that desire that kids have to test themselves, to stretch themselves. And when you have these kind of antiseptic little play areas where, you know, the worst thing that could happen is you, you know, scrape your knee and, and cry. And, and it's, it's not real to kids. And I, I look at my grandchildren when we go to the park and they want to climb up, they want to go higher than mom is comfortable with. Um, but there's just something about that. And I remember, oh, climbing trees. I love to climb trees. And I think all kids do. But, you know, a mother watching a child climb a tree can either get nervous or impede the process of climbing the tree by saying, be careful, be careful, that's high enough or whatever. But when a mother isn't there, you can really stretch yourself. And yeah, some people fall and get hurt. But um, there's just such a, a joy to discovering your own capacities as a child. I think that joy carries over into adulthood where you then test yourself and drive yourself and stretch yourself even, and the dangers may become less physical, but that willingness to take risk and trust yourself, isn't that a life skill you could never really replace Right. And in fact, I was just talking to this um, this author who wrote a book called Disconnected, and he was a school counselor and he's a psychologist. But he was saying in his book that kids are so afraid to fail. They're not trying anything. And you can really start to see how on both on both sides of it, that long term, that having these opportunities to stretch yourself and to risk. Um, and to know that when you fall, you can try again or try something different, you know, or that the damage is not lifelong lasting, that those are skills you would carry with you throughout your life in, you know, in different situations. Um, but it's tricky to get there. I mean, I, I know you had said, I'd heard you say once your job was to keep out of your mom's hair, you know, cause she was working and, um, and, and like you said, kids do act differently when they're not when there's not a parent that's right there or sort of scrutinizing their every move, you know, but this is sort of how our society runs, uh, which is filling the day with adult directed activity and um, kind of always being there. What do you have advice, you know, um, in this day and age of. Uh, it's you know, it's the a hard time because as as uh, Richard Louvre talks about in his book, Nature Deficit Disorder, 
um, it is very easy for kids to get um, so screen focused that they don't even want to go outside anymore. So there's that combination of parents worrying about unsupervised play and kids gradually becoming acclimated against it, saying, no, I'd rather go to Minecraft. I'd rather play video game. I'd rather, you know, and as they get to teenagers, I'd rather sit on my phone and, and scroll through my Instagram friends. And, you know, this, I think if, if we survive this age, historians will look back and say, that was one of the worst periods of time for the physical, emotional, mental health of children, primarily because of how easily we all get sucked into using our free time with screens. Right. And so, you know, your work is so valuable to just help all parents, you know, homeschooling or not. But anyone who's got a child is from now the earliest age tempted to babysit that child with a screen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I've been going to homeschool conventions for 20 years. So I will tell you 20 years ago, usually if parents brought kids to a homeschool convention, they had books, they had coloring books, they had, you know, actual paper that they were involved with. Um, and, and that that's fine. I mean, you know, I always carried a book around wherever I went. So if I got bored, I could read a book, which would usually happen if I'm with my mom and she's talking to someone. Right. But now you see most kids, if they're, you know, not interacting with someone, um, they are looking at screens of one sort or another. So even in the homeschool world, you know, there's this big shift and then, how easily does that behavior uh, continue on? Yeah, it's a nice day. You could go out and play, but oh, I'm doing so good in my game. I want to just stay here and stare at the screen some more. So, you know, we can't eliminate screens and screen based entertainment, but, you know, I am constantly trying to encourage parents, you know, as an older parent who kind of lived through the explosion of um, internet and device in homes. Um, you can't really ever go backwards on technology. So we, as you give your kids more access to screens and screen-based entertainment and engagements, realize you can't take that, you can't take that back from them. So it's better to err on the side of giving it to them very slowly and trying to preserve their time to engage with whatever is available from Legos to dollhouses to books to the trees in the backyard. And then, you know, one of the benefits of homeschooling is you can just take a day off if you need to and say, Hey, we're heading to the Hills. We're going to the beach. We're going to the lake. We're going to go to the park. We're not going to, you know, stay inside when it's a perfect opportunity to be outside. And I'll tell you one of the things that I, uh, you know, I, there are many people who suffered horribly during uh, the worst of the COVID period. And it, you know, it is sad when people suffer and sometimes die, but there were some silver linings to this cloud. And one of them was kids not in school were at home. And in our neighborhood, 
our, our little subdivision and my wife and I walk regularly around our subdivision and the neighboring subdivisions was seeing, you know, in the middle of the day at two o'clock, parents and kids outside, you know, shooting hoops or playing in their yard or riding their bikes. And I just thought you didn't normally see that kind of thing at all. At before all. This. It's the and, and I know. that was an opportunity for parents and kids to just get outside together that I think was super healthy in many ways. Yeah, I saw it too. You know, and I remember being blown away by it. Kids out in the, in the lawn, you know, and that before, before that you wouldn't have seen it. And, you know, so I think this is an opportunity that we have because parents are experiencing it to remind them that there's value in, um, in all of these sort of simple, these simple experiences that they hold a lot of value for kids and their cognitive ability and their um, their physical abilities and their social skills and emotionally. And then like you had said, spiritually, you know, touched your soul, you know, being out in creation and, um, and then, you know, then we're enjoying it too, right. We're building a relationship and, and we have these pillars of memories um, that I, I talked to this Peter Gray. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He has a book called free to learn. And at the very, very, very end of his book, Andrew, he talks about how they let their 13-year-old go to Europe for two weeks by himself in 1982, all by himself. He's a type 1 diabetic, you know, so they were a little nervous about his health. He wore a necklace and, and they said he earned all the money. He planned the whole trip without the internet, you know, um, he bought, he figured out how to buy the plane ticket. I mean, they dropped him off at the airport, Andrew, for two weeks. You know, I think they had one phone call home. There's no cell phone. You know, and I just thought, wow, things have really changed in 40 years, um, you know, in terms of what we let our kids do. And, and that was a little eye-opening for me. I'm like, I can let up a little bit. You know? and <laughs> I'm sure. Crap, you know, my kid can ride the bike around the block or, you know. I'm sure you've um, probably read the book Bud and Me or read about the Abernathy. I haven't, but I've heard of it. I've heard of it. With the oh, horror, it's right? mind-blowing. And this is back, you know, at the early, like the first decade of the 1900s. I'm not sure what year exactly. But here's kids that are seven and five years old, and, and they want to ride their horses from Oklahoma City to Santa Fe, New Mexico, their father is the U.S. Marshal for Western Oklahoma, and he gets them their horses and gets them equipped and gives them a checkbook and says, you know, I'll meet you at the governor's place in Santa Fe. He's a friend of mine. And I mean, it's, it's so mind blowing as you read the book. Of course, the big thought is, where's their mother? Like what mother would allow this? Um, but it uh, and, and one thing Richard Louvre pointed out was that. If you look statistically, crimes against children have not increased in the last hundred years. Yeah. What has increased is the reporting of crimes against children. So some tragedy happens and it's rare, but everybody knows about it. Everybody's aware. And that causes fear for everybody. Um, and, and I think reading that book, Bud and Me, made me realize, wow, you know, these kids were obviously exceptionally resourceful, 
but they met good people everywhere they went. And I bet that was the same thing with, you know, Peter's son who went over to Europe at 13. He probably just met very good, helpful people that were um, on his side in terms of helping him grow up and have adventures. And so I think we, you know, we do have to be careful that we don't become a victim to, you know, the fears of strangers and unknown things. Um, we have to be prudent as parents, but um, we, we can't over fear. And then what do we end up with is kids who don't take risks, who aren't adventurous. And, you know, probably if you interview entrepreneurs, and that'd be an interesting research project is to find some of the more successful entrepreneurs and say, what was your childhood like? What kind of risks did you have an opportunity to take? Because really, in the end, it's all about being willing to take risks, trust yourself, trust God, and, and then maybe you fail but you learn lessons and move forward. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com 1000. That's drinkag1.com 1000. Check it out. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Yeah, and you do see that a lot of people, um, you know, they, they talk about their childhoods. We just had an interview with 
the author of the Green Ember series, Sam Smith. And, you know, we met also at the homeschool convention and, you know, we talked about doing a podcast episode together and I was sort of thinking, well, you know, what are we really going to talk about? You know, you're an author. And, and what he said was he credits his creativity to playing in the woods and the things that they would come up with as children. And he said, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, but yeah, these, you know, these experiences as a, as a young child um, translated into this amazing adult work that he's doing and, and the impact that he's having. So I think maybe the last thing that we could talk about, we're running out of time here, is this sort of achievement trap, a trap. I've heard you talk about like parents want to their children to have every single opportunity and there's this tendency toward toward home, toward overscheduling. And one of the things actually that really struck a chord with me um, that I heard you talk about was, and I think this has come up a lot, especially since a lot of husbands are home um, because of COVID, is sort of this, like, where's my wife? Why isn't she doing the schooling, you know, for these homeschool families? And this is something that is really relatable. Like, there was a little bit of an autonomy before. And I think as a mom, my journey has been one of just continually stepping back. So, you know, where I was at the beginning directing, directing, directing as a homeschool family, filling in all the time that I've been learning that what the child finds worthy is worthy. And so, you know, if they're out and they're playing a game in the yard, I've stopped calling them in to do their IEW. We'll do it later, you know. And and but but with dads in the home, I think then there's more of this sort of like, well, what's going on? What you know, why aren't we doing, doing, doing? So, you know. Talk to me about this achievement trap and, you know, kind of what should our schedules look like and, um, you know, where does this important downtime sort of fit in? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen both in um, educational institutions as well as homeschooling to some degree is this um, application of, say, business principles to childhood. Um, There's a saying that I really don't like. I understand it, but I really dislike it when it gets applied to the world of children, which is what gets measured is what gets done. This is a, you know, a business concept. Like you have to have metrics, you have to have, you know, all, all of this planning, you have to use every minute of every day, efficiently to make the most money you can make. And so we, we've kind of taken our almost hyper capitalistic mentality and applied it to children. And so if they're not using every minute of, you know, if we haven't scheduled every minute of their day, we're missing some opportunity. So I tell the story of, um, and I think this is the one you were, you were thinking of. I tell the story of, I was uh, I had an office at home in the in an uh, outbuilding, a little converted shop. And so I'm working, working. It's mid morning. I've got to go somewhere. So I I walk through the house and there's my 10 year old daughter sitting at the window, looking out the big glass window into the backyard. And so I'm thinking, OK, it's 1030 in the morning. Um, why is she sitting here doing nothing? <laughs> this is so relatable um, because all the dads are home. <laughs> it, 
you know, where's my wife? Um, how come there's not like schooling going on? Cause if you're not doing something at 10 30 AM, that's bad. That's, that's homeschool failure, you know? So I make a mental note. I'm going to find her, find out what's going on. So anyway, I go in, take a shower, get dressed, whatever. I come back out maybe 10, 15 minutes later. She's still sitting in the same spot, staring out the window. So I put on my nice dad voice and I say, Hey, sweetie, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and she kind of comes out of whatever she was thinking about. She, she looks up at me and she goes, well, dad, things are just kind of connecting up in my brain. And, and I remember that moment very clearly because I was convicted and I thought, holy smoke, who am I to interfere with things kind of connecting up in her brain, you know? Yeah. And, and then when I started, you know, I read Lou's book and I started thinking about this subject more, that story came back to me. And I thought, boy, I had so many times, like sitting on the boat with nothing to do just staring at the hills of Catalina Island and looking at the shape of the mountain and making up stories about the face that you could see in the mountain. And that level of contemplation or, you know, looking at the sand and creating little patterns in the sand and doing these things that have no product per se, there, there's nothing to measure there. Yeah. There's no good result that you could say that was a great use of a, you know, half an hour or an hour of time. And yet, as you said, S.D. Smith said in the forest, you know, the imagination. Um, kids used to lie. I remember lying on the grass, staring up at the clouds, watching the clouds go by and seeing different forms and figures. I bet 90 percent of kids under the age of 20 today have never done that for more than a very brief time, if at all. And so, you know, it's like the universe gave us the materials to grow our imagination, to facilitate the skill of contemplation and reflection and, and being at peace and, and being comfortable with ourselves and, those are all the skills that are probably most lacking. And then people have anxieties and they have their uh, tendencies toward, um, you know, feeling if they're not busy or productive, they're failing. And then that can contribute to depression. And then you, you know, you, you seek escape from, from that by being entertained and then you're not comfortable with yourself. Um, gift of solitude. Even John Taylor Gatto talks about that. You know, he talked about sort of the gift of enjoying your own company, you know, yes. that when we practice solitude and we have times that are not filled with busyness, that we do learn to love ourselves and to love our own company. And that was, um, that was a big statement I read of his that I hadn't heard anyone really talk about before. And I hear you talk about it here with your daughter, she had her time of solitude or your own times of solitude and, um, and how those affect us for the rest of our lives. Yeah. I, and another one, I remember I was in the house and my older daughter, 
and a young man who was going to become her fiance. Uh, and we'd finished dinner. My wife was not back from wherever she was yet. And I realized that my youngest daughter, who was probably nine at the time, was not in the house and it had gotten dark outside. So I poked, poked out my head and I called her name and she answered. And I said, what, what you doing? And she said, sitting on a mound. <laughs> you know, it was kind of twilight. It was, it was almost dark. The stars were just starting to come out. And we had this big pile of dirt that was from some leftover project or whatever. And, and I said, are, are you okay? She goes, oh, yeah, I'm great. And I just thought, okay. And, and I went back in the house and continued the conversation with the other kids. And, and I always remember that as like, wow, how many of us would just have the willingness to go out and sit on a mound of dirt at twilight and watch the stars come out and think about everything or nothing. It, and you know what I find funny is now there's this huge business and countless books of people have written about how to use meditation to overcome stress and anxiety and depression and all of these things that are plaguing the, you know, the millennials and the Gen X and the Gen Z and whoever comes after. Everybody, you know, is looking for help to be happier. Yeah. Truth is, I think if if everyone had grown up and still had the habit of some degree of just being outside for no particular reason, right. we would be moving into that zone of getting the right kind of brain waves and all that stuff that now has to be technically described and, and defended in books. Right. Um, right. Just learning to be by yourself and be who you are and be present in your environment. Um, kids aren't really having those opportunities. Um, you know, it's interesting because we talked at the beginning about biographies, you know, and how that helps. I mean, that's helped me be more resilient um, in my pursuits because you see that, you know, everyone has ups and downs. And so maybe part of this whole journey is for parents to hear stories like yours or stories like Bud and Me, you know, and our stories like Peter Gray, you know, I mean, that changed me. A 13 year old that went to Europe by himself for two weeks. It helps me, you know, uh, gain perspective and. So maybe that's part of, you know, this this phase of life, which is that parents need to hear stories about how childhood was and how it was fine and and what came of it, you know, the beauty that came of it. So I really appreciate your time. Um, if So if people are interested in finding out more about you, finding out about IEW, which we love the resources. Like I said, we've got several of them here. Um, where can they find where can they find that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, we have our website. It's easy. Uh, it's IEW.com. That is easy. So um, it's a it's an easy website, three-letter three domain, IEW.com. And then we have a special link uh, if you do slash and then free hyphen lessons, free hyphen lessons, IEW.com slash free hyphen lessons. People can actually get uh, three weeks of fix-it lessons for free. Um, they can get um, our spelling if they're interested in, in kind of a more auditory approach to teaching spelling. We have some writing lesson video. 
uh, about three weeks. Um, and so you can try out most of our um, main products at no cost, no commitment. And, you know, increasingly we've seen parents who aren't necessarily homeschooling full time, but they do want to enrich their children's education and learning. Um, even though they go to school, they're looking for things like the fix it grammar that can be done in, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day that the schools aren't necessarily doing or doing well. Um, you know, writing courses. We've had people get one of our writing courses and start over a vacation period. And then the kids discover, oh, this is really going to help me with my school assignments. Yeah. So, you know, we're having increasing number of parents who are interested in supplementing uh, whatever their kids are getting, if they're in a school or not, uh, with some of what, you know, used to be considered just homeschool curriculum. So uh, one thing I like, uh, a friend of mine said, and I've kind of repeated this many times is every parent homeschools, it's just some do it more than others. So even if your kids go to school all day, five days a week, you're still teaching them at home and your choice is to do that, you know, consciously or not. But, um, you know, again, you don't want to fall into the, the time trap, the achievement trap that Louvre talks about, it's okay to not do academics at home as well. It's okay to not have your kid in every single curricular activity. Um, And I I guess the biggest thing that we love uh, intrinsically is freedom. We we love the freedom to follow our intuition, follow our, our promptings, follow the the needs we perceive in our children, whether that's just take the whole day off from schoolwork and go outside or find something that we can do with them that we know would be valuable apart from whatever else they're already doing. So we we all love freedom. Yeah, for sure. And even on your blog, you have a lot of resources. So there was an idea of writing what you're grateful for on a pumpkin. That was cute. There was a lot of poetry on there, which I thought was fun. The poem for fall, the field mouse. There was Thanksgiving poem, a Christmas haikus, gardening resources. There's actually quite a bit on your website, Andrew. Things about collecting and nature walks. There was a nature walk blog post that had all sorts of resources on it for birds and wildflowers, little links out to places to learn about butterflies and So it's great. Your website has a lot for parents, IEW.com. So resources, um, curriculum resources, and then all these other things as well. So appreciate all those, all those things to help parents. Um, Can we end with a favorite outdoor um, childhood memory of yours? Oh boy. I was spearfishing at Catalina Island. I was probably 13 or 14. And I saw a very large halibut on the bottom of the, the, you know, ocean there, not far from where our boat was anchored. It was probably 14, 15 feet deep. Not hard for me. I didn't have scuba gear, so I was just snorkeling. So I took a big breath and I went down. As I got closer, this fish got bigger and bigger. And I got more excited and I had my spear gun and I hit it right in the head. 
And this fish just took off. And at that moment, I realized this fish was much bigger than I had ever experienced. And it was being bigger, stronger. And of course, a fish like that, when it gets hit with a spear, will head for deeper water. And so it just went and went. And it was it was probably almost three feet. And this is not a fish story. I mean, that is a very big halibut. And when you're snorkeling, you can only be underwater for so long before you have to go up to the surface and not die. And unfortunately, this spear, this fish came off my spear and then I went up to the surface and I took a huge breath and I looked down and I see this fish and of course blood's coming out of its head. And I'm partly like, I have to get that fish. I can't just let it bleed out and die. Plus I really want to get that fish. Um, and it was probably 30 feet deep. I mean, it was, it was deeper than I had ever dove before. So I, I said, I'm going to try I'm going to try. So I took this huge deep breath. I cocked up my spear gun, took a huge deep breath. I swam straight down for this thing. And of course, pressure builds up in your head. After you get below about 20 feet, it's really painful. Yeah. And I'm not used to it. And my lungs are bursting. And I, I finally get close enough. And I think, okay, I can, I can hit this fish. And I got as close as I could. I got it right in the head again. And of course, it took off again, only this time I'm like, okay, it's coming with me. And so I'm trying to swim for the surface. It's trying to go out into the deep water. And it, it was this battle. And I did finally get to the surface and I managed to pull it up. And I am holding the spear and this fish, I mean, it's, it, it's 20, 30 pounds. It's this huge fish. I'm holding it above the surface. My, my lungs, my ears, my whole head is like bursting out. And I'm like, I didn't die. And I got the fish. And then I managed to get back to the boat. And of course, my mom's like blown away because we had never had a fish this size before. And that memory, and I, I don't know how old I was. I'm pretty sure I had to be, you know, in that 13, 14, yeah. maybe 15 zone. But that was one of the memories where I was stretched to my absolute limit of what was physically possible for me to do. And I was blessed with some success. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that just stuck with me. And yeah. we had delicious halibut for the rest of that wow. trip. I mean, we had more yeah. halibut than we eat. Yeah. Um, grit, but, um, resilience. And a, and a bigger trust in your own capacity. What is yeah, it could have gone the other way. I could have lost the fish or died, but it all worked out okay. <laughs> That's great, Andrew. Well, listen, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, thank you so much for being for being here with me today. Well, thank you for all you do to inspire the countless parents who I know uh, have been so blessed by the the kind of lifestyle change that you have inspired in them. So keep up your good work too. God bless you. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. 
I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.